0: For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit in that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, To send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: God. Okay, so we're looking at the book of Acts, um, the Acts of the Apostles. I've been calling it the Acts of the Ascended Lord Jesus, because it's really about the actions that Jesus continued to do after he was uh, ascended. Uh, He rose from the grave after he was crucified, and then that's not the end of the story. A lot of people think that's the end of the story, but after he rose, he actually also moved into the invisible realm, which is hard to describe. Uh, To say ascension, it sounds like he went up towards the sky or towards the moon, which is not true. It's more like he entered into uh, this other dimension that we cannot... uh, sea that is all around us. And and from that dimension, he reigns right now. And uh, his main act of all the acts that he does in the book of Acts is the ascended Lord uh, pours out his Holy Spirit on his church and still does to this day. We are his people, the church created by the Holy Spirit. He pours out his spirit on us and he makes us like an alternative community in any city, an alternative city in any city where we are witnessing to the reign of a God who was different from... Any of the gods of the nations, different from the president of the United States, different from Queen of England, uh, different from any, any government at all. You have this very unique Lord that we as a church witness to. And when people look at the church, they should say, that's what Jesus is like. That's the way he governs his people. So um, in this particular passage, it's a major transition. Uh, last week, I said that when the gospel came to Cornelius... It was the first time you went uh, from a purely Jewish phenomenon. Christianity was basically a Jewish messianic movement. Until Cornelius last week in Caesarea. And then it actually entered into the house of someone who was not Jewish. He was um, Gentile. He was a centurion. He was somebody that believed in Yahweh. And he they call him a God-fear or a proselyte. Because he actually was trying to keep the law of Moses to some extent. Not circumcision, not the dietary laws. But to some extent, the Ten Commandments. So that was Cornelius. That was one man in in Caesarea, which is pretty near uh, Jerusalem, compared to Antioch. This is like way north. So now we're not, we're really not down in Palestine at all anymore. Now we're up in Syria. It's near where the earthquakes happened recently with Turkey. So it's pretty near Turkey, if you know where um, Syria is. So this is Antioch. This is not just one uh, God-fearing Gentile like Cornelius. This is Pure paganism. These are people that worship Zeus and Hermes. Uh, These are people who have never heard of the God of Israel. So Antioch is where this whole thing is happening. And this is where um, instead of just like one man and his family becoming part of the church, you're talking about this gigantic pagan morass of Antioch. And many, many people becoming Christians. Verse 21, a great number turned to the Lord. I, I would say maybe more than all the Christians that had ever been in the world until that point. Because Antioch is that huge. It would be like going from Winston-Salem to New York City. And, and so you have just a vast number of people to be hit by the gospel up in Antioch. And um, there are so many people that turn to the Lord that they actually change the name of the movement um, to Christian. It was formerly just called, like, The Way. Uh, it was called The Way. That was back when it was in Jerusalem. Now that it's up in Antioch, it spreads so far in such a diff- different land It's actually been labeled as Christian, which is a slur. It was a pagan slur for these people that meant like oily or greasy. But uh, the Christians like gladly took it on. We are Christians. Uh, Also known as the king's people. And um, if you think about the way that the the Jewish Christians at this time um, responded to what was happening in Antioch, it's pretty amazing. Because they simply allowed this this new thing to happen to them. They, They could have... Put their foot down. Uh, they could have, uh, you know, really clamped down and said, "We are not letting in uh, these Gentiles. These are pagans. We're not letting them in. They're messing up our system. They're changing our name." They didn't do that. Instead, they just welcomed them in, and uh, and so it created this this whole new phenomenon called Christianity, which is what we live with today. Uh, so I want to look at the hospitality of the Jewish Christians, and then because of their hospitality. You see the reverberation effect of that where the Gentiles, who are the Christians up in Antioch, they are then moved in their hearts to give generously back to the church of Jerusalem. So it's the hospitality of the people up in Antioch, the Jerusalem, and then they send their gifts back down to Jerusalem. So those two things, the hospitality of the Jewish Christians in Antioch and the generosity of the Gentile Christians in Antioch as a response to that hospitality. So... Uh, Look at verse 19. You've got to read this carefully because it says that when Stephen was martyred, that was back in chapter 8, we saw Stephen martyred. When Stephen was martyred, um, all these people that were native to Jerusalem, they wandered, they were persecuted, and they scattered them up to Phoenicia and Cyprus and even to Antioch. But they were only preaching to Jews. So these are people who are, they're native Jewish people who became Christians at Pentecost. And now they have left Jerusalem and they're, they're up in Antioch now, and it's really weird to them because this is like brand new territory. They've never seen anything like this. And they are not, they are not going to, uh, to the homes of Gentiles because it makes them really nervous. So they're sticking with you know, synagogues and Jewish homes only. They're, only. they're only speaking to the Jews. They're not comfortable yet speaking to people who are not within Judaism. Now, Antioch is the third largest city in the empire, and it's the most cosmopolitan. It it is a city of, it was 500,000 people at the time. I would encourage you to Google it and look at what it looked like. It was a beautiful city, amazing city on this huge river, the Orontes River. It had 18 different ethnic ghettos. They were all, had walls around them. So there were walls outside the city and walls inside the city to keep them from fighting. In fact, when you get to Acts chapter 13, verse 1, you see that the five leaders of the church of Antioch were all of different ethnicities. So it's breaking down these you know, huge barriers that were set up in the, in the town. But this is, a, this is a town of half a million people. And if you know where Antioch is, it's the crossroads of Asia, Europe, and Africa. So if you're going from Europe to Asia, or Asia to Africa, or Europe to Africa, you, you, you went through Antioch. It was a huge cosmopolitan city. And that is where, as refugees always do, refugees go to the big cities, because that's where they're safe. So the refugees have gone to Antioch. And the, the ones who are native to Jerusalem that are Jewish, they only preach to the Jews. Now look at what happens in verse 20, that the ones from Cyprus and Libya, they also preach to the Gentiles. These are people from Africa and from the islands. So the Africans and the islanders are more adventurous than the people from Jerusalem. And they are like, we, we get the, the Gentiles because that's us. And so instead of just going to the synagogue and the Jewish home, they actually start going to pagan temples and to markets and evangelizing. And this is a, a huge turning point, like I said, in, in, in world history. If this had not happened, you would have only had a Messianic Jewish splinter movement. But instead, you have this thing that is now called Christianity. And many believed in verse 21. And again, if I were if I were a Jewish Christian, put yourself in, in their shoes. Um, I would have been angry and scared, and I would not have wanted my children to be playing with uncircumcised children, and I would not have wanted to be eating pork with Gentiles or going anywhere near their, their temples, uh, their incredibly, um, you know, highly sexual, lewd temple practices, temple prostitution, that would have made me incredibly nervous, I think probably you can relate to that if you have children, and so you can imagine them saying, like, I don't want to lose our culture. I don't want to stop speaking Aramaic. You know, I don't, I don't want to be with people who are speaking all these different languages. Uh, and they, they could have easily just said, we're going to keep it the way we always have done it. But they didn't do that. Instead, they were willing to have the movement changed to Christian, verse 26. The disciples were first called Christians. You know, it's like BB&T became truists. It's a, it's a big change to actually, you have to do all the signage, you know, everything's got to change. You've got to talk a different way. Um, but this is a much bigger deal than that. Changing the name of the movement itself, being labeled a Christian now. If you were somebody who was proudly Jewish, you were an Israelite, you were a son of Abraham, and now you're being called, being called like greasy or oily. I mean, they they accepted that. They didn't they didn't shut that down. And I, and I think that one of the things that it's Really uh, convicted me of is just my uh, fear of letting people into uh, our family, this family. Uh, we we read an article as a staff uh, that Austin gave us um, by Tim Keller, who's a preacher in New York, about how churches need to change as they go from smaller to medium to large, and just the dynamics that have to change in a church. And I did not, I did not like what I read. I mean, it was it was it was difficult. It's not what I. That's not why I, you know, that's not how I think of Salem. I, I started like when Salem was 20, 25 people and now it's quite a bit more and just it's hard to to allow change to happen in in your community. Some of you have been here for a really long time and you've and you're like where who are these people around me? I don't know these people anymore. This is not my this is not my beautiful home. You know, this is this is not the life that I uh, had bargained on and um, I know personally right now our own family is, is trying to welcome somebody in. And that's really hard. I've talked to some of y'all about that. It's really difficult to have your family, having someone brought into that family. Uh, that's nothing compared to what these Jewish Christians were dealing with in Antioch. But think about even like if you have a group of three friends. It's you and two friends and there's another one trying to get in. And how hard that can be to let them in. Um, But that, I think there's a call to hospitality that's radical in the gospel. That these Jewish Christians somehow they knew and they got it. And they didn't clamp down. And they knew, like, this is the Spirit's family, so we're not going to try to control this. We're not going to try to control who are at dinner with us or who goes on vacation with us or who has holidays with us, who's, you know, doing the um, uh, Seder's and Shabbat and. Uh, The festival booths, Passover, they're not going to control who's there. They're just going to let the Lord add. And that's why it says in verse 24, many were added to the Lord. And added means they were not themselves the agents. They were added by God. And like I said last week, this church, our family is created by the Holy Spirit. Um, We are added to the number. We don't just make choices. uh, In the grand scheme of things, in the spiritual realm, the invisible realm... There are other things that are going on. There are other actors at play, and we are—we're um, being moved by the hand of the Lord. Verse twenty-one: The hand of the Lord was with them. So the Spirit is the one who is doing this. He is opening up these Jewish Christians to allow in these pagans who don't know anything about Yahweh or the uh, the morality of the Ten Commandments. They were—they were making mistakes. They're probably sleeping around still. They're probably getting drunk all the time. Um, it, was, it was a totally different group of people. Um, it's kind of like the wildest fraternity or sorority at a college. And you're like, you know, maybe you're an RUF and you're just like at some crazy wild party. And, you're, and these people start getting converted and coming in. And you're like, I don't know if I want those people in our midst. They're so different from us. And these people are just uh, allowing it to happen. They're allowing it to happen. In fact, the, the church in Jerusalem, when they heard about it, They didn't say, we're going to put an end to this. No more pagans in the church. This is a Jewish movement, and we're not letting this happen. We're not letting the name change. We're going to grab a hold of the name, and we're going to continue to be Israelites. But instead, in verse 22, it says, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, if you remember Barnabas, he was really, really wealthy. He gave a lot of money early on. He sold his entire field and gave the money to the church. This is a really wealthy, big donor. In the church, uh, he's also called the son of encouragement uh, because he's a very encouraging person who builds people up with power, and he does that. He's full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And instead of uh, saying we're going to try to uh, stop this thing, they pour fuel on the fire, and they say we want it to grow, we want to send Barnabas up there. Let's like let's keep it going. Let's stoke the flame. And Barnabas was so full of faith that he took this huge risk. And um, in verse 25, it says, he went to Tarsus to find Paul or Saul. And uh, if you know the NBA, it's kind of like if you went and got Kyrie Irving to play on your team. And this guy is like trouble. He says things that are really insensitive. Uh, He kind of messes up locker rooms. He's like a ball hog. So it would be kind of like taking this giant risk and going out and signing Kyrie Irving and bringing him on. He's like the guy you did not want to touch. Paul was the man you did not want to touch in the early church because he had already been dropped by Jerusalem. Jerusalem uh, thought he was so dangerous; they said, "We're going to send him off to Tarsus." So, if you go back to Acts nine twenty nine, it says that Paul debated with the Jews in Jerusalem, and they tried to kill him. And so, the church, realizing that they were trying to kill Paul, took him to a boat and sent him off to Tarsus. Like, you got to get out of here. Uh, you're messing up a good thing we have going here. And they could not, he was too hot to handle. And so Barnabas, thinking about, okay, all these Gentiles are here. This guy knows how to work with Gentiles. Uh, in fact, he was called the apostle to the Gentiles. Barnabas is like, I'm going to go find Paul. It's not that far to Tarsus. And I imagine him like going to Paul's parents' house and he's like living in their basement. I think i like drunk in a hammock or something like that, you know, playing Jimmy Buffett. And he like he throws water on his face. and He's like, you're the apostle of the Gentiles, you know, get over there. I found some Gentiles for you. Let's go preach the gospel. And I love how he believes in Paul when Paul like doesn't believe in himself. Probably Paul is probably really trying to figure out what happened to me. I became a Christian. They rejected me. They sent me to Tarsus. There's no Christians here. I'm back with my family. He's just trying to put it all together and then here comes Barnabas his old friend. And he's like, "I've got something for you to do. Let's go back to Antioch." And the strategy pays off big time. Like he's the perfect fit for Antioch. Because when Paul gets there, it just like he just comes alive. He he becomes the man he was always meant to be. Verse 26 says he met with the church for a year and he taught many people. And I imagine what he taught was because we know his letters. He taught them, "Look, Ethnicity has nothing to do with salvation. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was the greatest Israelite of all. And food laws and being a good person, diet, circumcision has nothing to do with salvation at all. And he, was the, he could preach that message more fire than anyone. Because he knew that from first-hand experience. He was the perfect guy for Antioch. He was telling them, look, I tried to murder Jesus... And he overwhelmed me with grace. And so you're welcome to. Because you're not, you're not as bad as I am. And I love it when Peter comes up to Antioch a few years later. It's a pretty astonishing mistake that Peter makes. He goes to Antioch and he starts to pull away from eating meals with the Gentiles. Because he's afraid of the Jewish opinion of him. So Peter actually gets there many years later. And he pulls away from eating with the Gentiles. And this is what, this is what Paul says in Galatians Two eleven. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stopped eating with the Gentiles. And Paul is like such a fierce defender of the Gentiles because he's like that is the gospel. Is that you don't have to do anything to be saved. So you have this amazing hospitality where the African Christians preach the gospel to pagans, the Jewish Christians are willing to change their name to Christian to accommodate them, the Jerusalem Christians send Barnabas up there to pour fuel in the fire. Barnabas goes and gets Paul and brings him to Antioch and grows the church even larger. And then Paul gets Luke, who lives in Antioch, to write the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And in fact, Antioch becomes like the missional center of Christianity. And in, in, in the year, like 200s, 300s, you had Antioch and Alexandria. They were the two great uh, centers of Christian theology. Antiochene Christianity and Alexandrian Christianity. And this is the city where... It all happened. It was Antioch. So that's the first thing. Is that these people stretched out their arms so far. And they loved these people so well. That it created uh, these incredibly generous disciples of Christ. Which is the second point. That the radical hospitality of the Jewish Christians. Led to this incredible generosity of the Gentile Christians. So let's look at that second point now. The Gentile generosity. In these days... Verse 27, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. They came down the mountain. They didn't come down from south. They, they actually, Jerusalem's south of Antioch, so they come down the mountain to the north. So they're coming down the mountain to Antioch. And the timing is perfect here because as a famine is about to hit, God has created this incredibly large, incredibly wealthy uh, urban church in Antioch it's going to be the grain that will save the Jerusalem church during the famine. So it says in verse 28, uh, Agabus stood up <clears throat> and predicted a drought. And uh, when, a, when a prophet spoke, like it was the perfect weather forecast. There was no doubt, but that it was going to happen. So they, they trusted, even before it stopped raining, these Gentile Christians, these new converts. You know, again, just a few... Years earlier, they were worshiping Hermes uh, or Aphrodite. Uh, they were involved in cult prostitution just a few years earlier. But now um, they are before it starts uh, becoming a drought, they're already piling up their wealth to send down to Jerusalem, these ex-pagans. They act on it immediately. In verse 29, they say, "Let's send relief to our new spiritual family in Judea." It's a beautiful thing. They had never met these people. Uh, all they knew about Jews their whole life is these people hate us. They despise us. They spit on us. They turn away from us. They won't let their children play with us. And now, and now these Gentiles who have been so well loved, uh, they are so full of faith and, and their hearts are so big now that they actually just send money down south to Jerusalem without even having met the people. And it seems like they don't even have to think about it. It's just like this automatic reaction. It's like a thin rod of air particles are just exploding you know, to five times the temperature of the surface of the sun, like when when there is uh, this lightning that occurs, thunder just automatically happens. It just, it's like a massive explosion that occurs, and that's what's happening here. When somebody gets the gospel, it just ex- it it explodes into generosity. It just happens. It's uh, it's automatic. When you realize how fully welcomed and loved you are, in spite of who you are and what you've done, you become generous. If you're not generous, you're not understanding that. It's that simple. It's like it's a it's a formula that if you understand the gospel, your heart will be generous. No matter how poor you are, how much you're struggling financially, or how much student debt you have, or how many kids you have, it doesn't really matter the externals. If you get the gospel, it's going to make you generous. It says in verse 29, they were determined to give everyone according to his ability. So even the even the widows that were in Antioch that didn't have any source of income, they actually probably were being They were being provided for by the church, so they really are not, it's not even their own money. The church is giving them like every month a certain amount of grain. And now those widows are taking that grain and giving some of that to Jerusalem. Just amazing generosity. And I guess the question that I ask myself is, you know, in, in a time like this, where there's a huge, huge inflation, the banks are kind of scary right now, investments are not necessarily good, um, it's hard to give. It's really hard to give. It's hard to give sacrificially. Sacrificial giving is by definition hard because sacrifice is hard. And yet this is telling us these people knew the famine was going to hit them too. They were going to be hit by the famine as well. They were not immune to the famine. And yet they say, we're going to give. Uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity is the book that I read that uh, brought me to faith. And um, I remember this I know so much of that book almost by heart because it just got seared into my mind. So whenever I'm thinking about a subject, that book comes to mind. And this is one of the quotes from that book on generosity. He says, um, give more than you can spare. If your spending on comforts, luxuries, and amusements is up to the standard common among those with whom you have the same income, you're probably giving away too little. Let me read that again. If your spending on comforts, luxuries and amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as yours, you're probably giving away too little. There ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do because our giving excludes them. And I think that's exactly what was going on in Antioch. These people were giving in a way that it prevented them from living a certain way they wanted to live because they were giving that much. Because again, a family was coming to hit them too. So if you think about the limitless hospitality of the one that we rejected and his love for us, that can actually give us the courage to overcome that barrier to giving. And sometimes it really helps to have an object lesson. Uh, I love the last line of this passage that um, I think Luke writes with a smile, with a wry smile. They said, uh, then they sent the money, this is verse 30, they sent the money by Barnabas and Paul. And Paul didn't need to go down there. In fact, he was doing a lot of good work up in Antioch. They didn't need him to come down to Jerusalem. He would have been really well served to stay in Antioch. But Barnabas was like, no, I want you to come too, Paul. And so I think he wanted Paul to come and bring them the money so that they could see, here's the man that you guys kicked out and you thought was too dangerous, and he's going to be the one bringing the huge load of grain to you. It said in Acts 9, 26, Barnabas Barnabas had to persuade the disciples to let Paul even come into the church. So they weren't even going to let him in a few years ago. And now here comes this caravan of grain and leading the way on a little donkey is Paul. And I think that Barnabas knew that they needed to feel just the burn of of grace being given to them by somebody they had rejected. I've told this story before. I think um, it happened last winter. I, told it, I think I've only told it once. But um, there's a neighbor on our street uh, who's pretty, pretty grumpy. And uh, I really don't even know his name. And there was one time about a year ago um, before this event where I was looking at this house that was for sale in our neighborhood. And uh, I was back in the back kind of looking in to see what it looked like in the back. And they, re- they renovated the house. I was looking, what's the Porsche look like? And this guy comes out and he's like, what are you doing back there? And just kind of confirmed to me uh, this is not a nice man. This guy is not a man that I, I'm going to ever be friends with or talk to. So I had kind of written him off. I had gossiped about him. I guess I just did again. But um, <laughs> this guy, the snowiest day of the year last year was this huge ice storm, and it was it was really nasty. And I was in my car um, trying to get out of my neighborhood, and uh, I just did a really stupid thing. And uh, spun my wheels, uh, and just went deeper and deeper down to the ice. It was absolutely not working. My car was like fishtailing. It was smoke coming out. And I looked over, and there he is, like sitting on his porch looking at me. And I thought he was just mocking me. Um, But uh, without a single word, word, he just comes slowly walking down with his shovel and just kind of shaking his head back and forth. And he came down, and he's like, no, 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 just turn your way like this. Kind of rolled his eyes. Now hit hit the accelerator. Now okay, stop, stop. And then he like would dig and dig, and he just led me all through the process. And pretty soon he got me out. And uh, and I was trying to thank him. He like wouldn't even talk to me. But I I could never ever think about that guy this, the same way, and I still can't. When I see him, like this guy has shown me grace in my time of greatest humiliation and embarrassment. And uh, and I am I am loved by this one, the silent one. Uh, who is treating me in a way that is not at all what I deserve and not the way I think about him. And that's the way, surely, Jerusalem Church felt when Paul brought them the grain and how we should feel as we receive uh, this gift, this bounteous table from the one that we rejected, from the God that we reject all the time. Um, Because on the night he was betrayed...
0: We love these rascals.